Amberly Nelson here, excited about our upcoming conference, Hope for Heaven, on September 18th. And I'm really excited that I'll have my son with us that day. Uh, James Nelson here. He's got a lot of great information of what's happening among college-age kids everywhere, what's happening on the universities, this woke movement. Uh, it's hard not to notice the increasingly secular and woke culture that is going on today. Ultimately, we have to fight for the culture of this country. And right now, the culture of this country is a sickening culture. And we are on the brink of losing the greatest country in the history of humanity. I believe that my generation can be the greatest generation in American history, or we can lose this country. We are going to ultimately win and triumph. So that's what we're going to be talking about. Be sure and join us. That's September 18th, uh, Hope for Heaven. It's going to be phenomenal. Don't miss our Latter-day Media's inaugural conference, Hope for Heaven beginning September 18th at 9 a.m. Your ticket gives you access to a full day of thought-provoking speaker panels. Streamed live from the Kimber Academy in Lehigh, Utah, you'll also receive access to our brand new virtual library. Dozens of faith-promoting virtual presentations on a variety of spiritual topics. The virtual conference will be available at latterdaynetwork.com. Well, you are in for a very special treat today with Kay Godfrey. Is it possible that Kay Godfrey is one of the few archaeologists in the world who is privy to some of the most recent finds about a burning question for Latter-day events? Where is Solomon's Temple hiding? As a faithful Latter-day Saint, Kay is presenting today truly groundbreaking evidences outlined in scripture and recent discoveries. Would experts in Israel know the real location if they found it? How will it affect the building of the new temple in Jerusalem? We hope you share and like this video if you want to be a part of this great Latter-day effort to gather Israel. Welcome to our podcast. As you can see today, a little, little more laid back. It's going to be kind of a working podcast. In fact, um, <clears throat> I might recommend that you grab a pencil, a uh, and a piece of paper and perhaps record down some of these scriptural references we'll be going through today in sequence. It'll, it'll enable you to better follow our, our story perhaps as you review this after the fact. Today's podcast is entitled, Where is King Solomon's Temple Hiding? Um, outside of the podcast I've done on the Prophet Joseph Smith, this particular podcast is perhaps the most often requested presentation uh, that I've done. I have been blessed in my life to have uh, had the opportunity to have witnessed some really incredible things, mostly because the Lord puts me in a position to be at the right place at the right time. And I'm going to share with you today a, a life-changing experience that I have had relative to this theme of uh, where is King Solomon's temple hiding. But to better understand and appreciate this presentation, I want to give you um, a little bit of a background. To begin with, I want to talk with you just a little bit about uh, an end of days timeline of sorts. A number of years ago, I had an opportunity to meet with a number of biblical scholars and put together uh, a timeline from all available LDS sources of the end of days. And I'm just going to share three or four things on that timeline leading up to the uh, building or rebuilding of King Solomon's temple. So let's begin there uh, to start with. Um, the first four angels with trumps are warning men to repent. The fifth angel sounds his trump and Satan is loosed 
with more power and influence to tempt and afflict men. This is Doctrine and Covenants 135. The sixth angel sounds his trump. Satan assembles a mighty army. Ezekiel 38, 15. The army will be led by a man named Gog. Ezekiel 38, 2. Gog will come from the land of Magog, which is located somewhere we feel in modern Russia. Ezekiel 38.2. Magog is referred to as Gog's army. Now the prophet Joel said it will be the strongest army the world has ever seen. That's in Joel 2.2. Joel says the army will go forth conquering every nation in its path. Again, Joel 2.2. The prophet Zechariah says the army will eventually, quote, come up against Jerusalem to battle. Zechariah 14.2. The Jews from across the world will have gathered to Israel. The Lord will raise up a righteous leader among them whom the scriptures call David or the branch. He will be a literal descendant of King David. Jeremiah 39 and Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. Finally, we're at our point I want to make here. Under the direction of this great leader, the temple of Solomon will be built, Zechariah 6, 12. The temple will be nearly identical in size and shape to the original temple of Solomon, Ezekiel 40 through chapters 43. All right, that's perhaps enough of the end of day's timeline. Now I want to give you a little background on a historian by the name of Joseph ben Matiahu. Now, Joseph ben Mariahu is none other than Titus Flavius Josephus. So a little bit about Josephus, because I'll be referencing him periodically during the course of this presentation. Now, of course, he was a first century Roman slash Jewish scholar and historian. He was born in Jerusalem in 37 AD. He initially fought against the Romans during the first Jewish war as head of the Jewish forces in the Galilee. He surrendered in 67 AD to the Roman forces led by Vespasian. Now Josephus claimed that the Jewish messianic prophecies that initiated the first Roman Jewish war made reference to Vespasian becoming emperor of Rome. Well, in response, Vespasian decided to keep Josephus as a slave and interpreter. After Vespasian became emperor in 69 CE, <clears throat> he granted Josephus his freedom, at which time Josephus assumed the emperor's family name of Flavius. Flavius Josephus fully defected to the Roman side and was granted Roman citizenship. He became an advisor and a friend to Vespasian's son, a fellow by the name of Titus. He went with Titus as his translator when Titus led the siege of Jerusalem. Since the siege proved ineffective at stopping the Jewish revolt, the city's destruction and the looting and destruction of Herod's temple, that's the second temple, soon followed afterwards. Joseph recorded Jewish history until his death in 100 CE. So that's a little background on Flavius Josephus. And again, we'll be referencing him through the course of this presentation. All right, let's get right at it. You got your pencils in hand and uh, we'll work through this. Um, some of this you'll understand, some of it you won't. Uh, just hold on for the ride and the punchline. And I think you'll find this to be a very, very interesting. Okay, as we refer to the slides that you can see to my left, 
the Dome of the Rock. At times, this is one of the most volatile sites in the Middle East. But why? Why? Why does everyone want a piece of the rock? Judaism holds this site sacred as the location where Abraham attempted to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. The scriptures tell us this event took place, quote, in the land Moriah upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee. They also feel that the most western wall of the mount is the remnants of Herod's second temple and the closest wall to where the Holy of Holies was located. Now, the Islamic faith believe Mount Moriah is also the location of the Islamic uh, belief of Muhammad's night journey to Jerusalem. According to Islamic tradition, Muhammad was carried in vision on a barakh, that's a miraculous horse with a human head, from Mecca to Jerusalem. Here, Muhammad, the barakh, and angel Gabriel went to the Temple Mount and from there to heaven itself amidst a great light that lit up the night sky. Here he visited heaven and hell and encountered various prophets before returning uh, to Mecca. The shrine of the Dome of the Rock identifies the location of where this experience took place. Now the Christians revere the site as the location of New Testament events that involve the Savior. Such events as the story of Simeon and Anna or going about my father's business, uh, the widow's might, to temple cleansing, the woman taken in adultery, and of course the prophecy that the temple would fall. Now I would pose the question, what if they're all wrong? What if they're all wrong? So where is King Solomon's temple hiding? Is it the Harem Sharif or the Dome of the Rock? Is it perhaps the Dome of Tablets or Spirits? Is it the El Qas Mosque fountain that's there on site? Maybe it's the El Aqsa Mosque, the Islamic mosque there on the Temple Mount. Or, or maybe it's the Mormon Jerusalem Center on the Mount of Olives. Well, to answer this question, we begin with the scriptures. And so get your pencils and paper out. Here we go. And it all begins in 2 Samuel chapter 24. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, Joab's his captain of his host, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye all the people, that I may know the number of the people. Now, this is a little odd to, to think that, that he would be doing this. The he, the he referenced in this particular scripture uh, implies God. However, it is not God that's asking this to be done. In 1 Chronicles 21.1, it tells us, quote, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Satan tempted King David. In Exodus 30, verse 12, we're told that, quote, When you take the census of the children of Israel, every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord, that there be no plague among them. Well, Israel did not belong to David. Israel belonged to the Lord, and the Lord had not ordered a census. And Joab said unto the king, 
Now the Lord thy God add unto the people, and how many soever they be, a hundredfold, and what the eye of the Lord may see it, but, and here's the question, but why doth my Lord the King delight in this thing? Why are you doing this census thing? Joab and the captains wondered why he delighted in this thing. Well, I can tell you why. Pride and vanity. They had taken hold of David. Satan had hold of David. And now this was going to be his downfall. Well, notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed. And so Joab went out with his captains to start to take this census, just as King David had asked. And they went to Eror. He went to Jazir. Went to Tadimashi. Went to Dunjon. Went to Tyre and the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. And went all the way down to the south to Beersheba, taking this census. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people under the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword. And men of Judah, 500,000 men. And so from this census, we find out that there was 1,300,000 valiant men that could draw the sword, estimating perhaps the population of the 12 tribes at this particular time to be somewhere near 6 million people. That's the only good thing that came out of this, giving us some sort of rough estimate as to uh, the size. And David's heart smote him after he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. I have been very foolish. Well, David's heart was now condemning him. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto David's prophet, and it's a guy named Gad. And David's seer went to David and said, The Lord has offered thee one of three things. Choose thee one that I may do it unto thee. So these are, these are penance things. These are problems. David is now going to suffer because of his pride and vanity. And the Lord's giving him an option. You can choose one of three things. Number one, seven years of famine. Number two, flee three months before thine enemies. Or number three, three days of pestilence in the land. Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hands of let us fall now into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great, and let us not fall into the hands of men. So David was going to choose the three days of plagues. War and famine, David could have been protected, and his he and his family wouldn't have been affected. But the plague was indiscriminate. David needed to suffer too. And so he trusted in the Lord's mercy and he selected three days of, of, of plagues. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even till the time appointed. And there died from the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. This was a bad mistake. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord said unto the angel, It is enough. Stay thy hand. Now here's a really important part and the first part of our clue. Now remember, my background is archaeology and anthropology. So we're, we're in the dirt here a little bit. The last verse here. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arun of the Jebusite. 
And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people, and he said, Lo, I have sinned, I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, and this is something to remember, Go up and rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arun the Jebusite. And David, according to the sayings of Gad, went up as the Lord had commanded. And Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming on towards him. And Aruna went out and bowed himself before the king with his face on the ground. And he said, Wherefore is my lord the king come unto my servant? And David said, To buy thy, fleshing, thy threshing floor, to build an altar unto the Lord. So David's now going to go to this threshing floor where he saw the angel halted just as he was ready to destroy Jerusalem and he is going to build an altar there. And the purpose was to stay the plague from the people as it says in the scripture. Well, so David was instructed to erect an altar and this is where David saw the destroying angel and where God talked with David. This is where God stopped the plague and where David would now worship God. The threshing floor was north and east of the city, elevated so to catch the breeze for threshing. Aruna's threshing floor has a rich history. In 2 Chronicles 3, 1, it tells us that the threshing floor of Aruna was on Mount Moriah, the same hill where Abraham attempted to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. That's in Genesis 22, 2. In 1 Chronicles 21, 28, we also learned that this site would be a site of worship and sacrifice. Quote, and that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him in the threshing floor, then he sacrificed there. Also in 2 Chronicles 3, 1, we learned this place would be the location eventually of Solomon's temple. <clears throat> Quote, then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David bought the threshing floor and oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Now a shekel is a, is a weight measurement. It's 11 grams. So 50 shekels is 550 grams, and in today's exchange would be approximately $450. Well, this story concludes with 1 Chronicles 21, 26. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire at the altar of burnt offerings. So David bought uh, Arun's threshing floor and entreated the Lord and the plague was stayed from Israel. So where did this story take place? I mean, that's the real question we're asking ourselves is if all of this is where King Solomon's temple is, then let's simply find out where this was and, and we've got King Solomon's temple. So first question, where is Arun's threshing floor? Where is it located? Where is this altar built by David as commanded by Gad, the seer, the Lord? And so where is King Solomon's temple? I want to pause for just a second on this picture. I want you to look real carefully at this picture. It's the only time I show this in this presentation. Um, I like this picture an awful lot. It portrays the, the construction of King Solomon's temple. You can see the Phoenician boats. 
You can see the cedars of Lebanon. You can see the elephants uh, from Egypt. This picture was, uh, was, was done by Hugh Ferris in 1924. It's the only picture I've ever seen like this, and I, I like it an awful lot for a lot of reasons. Well, my contention is all of these things, threshing floor, the altar, King Solomon's temple, are in the same place. Well, let's begin with King David. Where was David at the time of the census? Well, he was in the city of David. 3,000 years ago, the city of David was about 12 acres in size, with a population of about 2,000 people. It was a Jebusite fortification. It was strategically located on a crescent-shaped mountain west of the Kidron Valley. The Gihon Spring flowed abundantly inside of this fortification with fresh living water. In fact, in 2 Samuel 5, 6 through 10, it describes the Jebusite men from the walls of their city mocking the armies of David in defiance. Not perhaps the best thing to do, because David is going to capture the Jebusite city by climbing through the water shaft. The city is now going to take on a new name. It's referred to in the scriptures as the stronghold of Zion or the city of David, 2 Samuel 5, 7. It was after this that the census that I've been, we've been talking about was actually taken. In 1 Kings chapters 38 and 39, we learn that also the Ark of the Covenant, Moses' tabernacle, was now at rest in this same sacrificial location. It was at the altar, the Gihon Spring location, that Zadok, the priest, and Nathan the prophet would take a horn of oil from the tabernacle and there anoint Solomon to be king. Here at this site, the Ark of the Covenant would rest for 27 years of David's reign and the first 11 years of King Solomon's reign. For 38 years, the Ark of the Covenant is going to remain in this particular tent over the Gihon Spring on Aruna's threshing floor near David's altar. In the Karathoth, which is the Babylonian Talmud, it teaches that all subsequent kings would be anointed at the site of the Spring of Gihon. An example is, quote, Joash, crowned king in the temple, positioned over the Gihong Spring, close quote. So where is this stronghold of Zion, Mount Zion, or the city of David? The city of David was situated at the southeastern ridge of what is currently Jerusalem. Josephus calls it the lower city. This was the original Mount Zion. Now, the first research in this area was done by W.F. Birch. He was an English archaeologist. For years, the identity of the area was only speculated. However, in 1880, the Hezekiah inscription was found within the tunnel linking the Gihon Spring to the southeast ridge. And so, literally, the controversy was over. The city of David had made itself known. The city of David was built over the Gihon Spring, the only fresh water supply in the area. In 285 BC, the Egyptian named Aristes viewed the temple and he stated categorically that the temple was located over an inexhaustible spring that welled up within the temple. About 115 AD, the Roman historian Tacitus gave another reference to the spring when he said, and I quote, The temple at Jerusalem had within its precincts a natural spring of water that issued forth from its interior. 
The Gihon Spring is an offal, an offal, a swelling, a mountain dome of water. David filled in the saddle between the city and the dome in order to create a high-level area for the temple to be built over the top of it. Solomon would then finish it and build the temple, finish it off. Pure, fresh spring water is essential for temple ceremonies. The Haramashari for the Dome of the Rock has no springs, no fresh running water at all. The Gihon Spring is the only spring within a five-mile radius. The city of David sits on a ridge shaped like a crescent moon with the horns to the north and south inwardly towards the Kidron Valley. The Ophel Mound or Gihon Spring was in the center of that crescent. An eyewitness account tells that the temple over the Gihon Spring was located in the center of the ridge. So you've got the city of David down here in the southeast quarter of what today is Jerusalem. You've got this crescent moon with the horns pointing inwardly towards the, the Kidron Valley. And yet the Ophel, the Gihon Spring, is located right here, right here in the middle. Okay, that's the bubble. And it filled in for a temple to be put on top, right over the right over the, uh, the water source. Hecateus of Abadira, this is an, an eyewitness account, said that the temple is nearly in the center of the city. In Psalms 116, verses 18 and 19, it states, quote, In the courts of the Lord's house, or the temple, in the midst of, or in the middle of, O Jerusalem. Well, the Dome of the Rock is not in the center of Jerusalem, but the extreme eastern part of early Jerusalem. So this is, uh, this is the city of David and the Ophel or the, um, the, um, the water source. Now Josephus, who we talked about earlier because we reference him on a number of occasions, describes for us the temple that he saw in 50 AD. It was a 600 foot square tower. Tower. The southeast corner was directly over the Kidron Valley and extended upward 300 cubits, or 450 feet, where it reached the natural platform of the temple. It was as tall as a 40-story building. So for one leg of this temple, it was down the valley here below, and then stood as a high tower. The book of Enoch and the book Shepherds of Hermaeus describes the temple as a large tower. If this description of the temple were transported to the area known as the Dome of the Rock, the temple would be higher than the summit of the Mount of Olives to the east. So if you took our temple and put it clear up here where the Dome of the Rock is, it would be the tallest thing in all of Israel, looking literally over the, uh, the, the Mount of Olives. Josephus wrote that the temple was situated next to and let me pause on this picture for just a second. Um, this, this particular picture portrays a Masonic idea of what the, uh, the, the temple might have looked like. Uh, again, the tower concept is what Josephus talked about and what eyewitnesses have alluded to, a very tall temple. So I just wanted to, to show you this Masonic uh, concept of, of King Solomon's temple. Josephus wrote that the temple was situated next to a Roman fort to the north. The distance between the two was exactly one stayed, or 600 feet. Joseph continues to record that King Herod built 
two side-by-side bridges connecting the gap between the temple and the Roman fort. So you have your side-by-side bridges here, you have a Roman fort here, and you have this tall temple here built clear down in the Tropian Valley here that uh, stood 450 feet tall. But the fort to the side there. The Roman fort is called Antonia Fortress. And Antonia Fortress was built by Herod to protect the temple and allow the Romans to keep watch over the Jews. Antonia Fortress is today the Haramek Sharif or the Dome of the Rock. Where that's at was a Roman fort. Still is a Roman fort. In Acts chapter 21, is a really interesting story about uh, the Apostle Paul. He entered the temple with his Gentile friends and they grab him and drag him from the temple. He's beaten and nearly killed had it not been for, quote, a company of soldiers who ran down to them. In verse 35, it says that when Paul reached the stairs, the soldiers. This implied that Paul was rescued by soldiers who descended down the stairs, rescuing him and taking him back up the stairs to the fort. So, they come down the stairs, rescue Paul, bring him back up the stairs. This entire story and concept does not work if you use the harem Sharif or the Dome of the Rock. It just, it just does not work. So what happened to the temple built by Solomon? And Matthew, Mark, and Luke were told that the Savior said, quote, not one stone of the temple and its support buildings would be left on top of the other. In 70 AD, the Romans leveled Jerusalem. Josephus, our Jewish historian friend, and Titus, his buddy, the Roman general who destroyed Jerusalem, were both eyewitnesses to this destruction. Josephus said, quote, Jerusalem was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those who dug it up to the foundation that there was nothing left to make those that had, would come hither believe that Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. Josephus gives us the reason for this wholesale destruction. Gold. Gold. The Jews had a custom of hiding their valuables in the walls of their homes and the temple treasury. When the fires consumed the city, the gold melted and descended into cracks and stone foundations. The 10th legion uprooted every stone of the temple and the city in order to capture all of this gold. So much gold was gathered, in fact, in this fashion that the price of gold fell to half of its pre-war value. However, one stone structure survived. Titus decided to keep the 10th legion in Jerusalem. They needed lodging, they needed shelter. Titus decided to occupy Fort Antonia, the fortress built by Herod for the Romans. And so it stood, it wasn't destroyed. An eyewitness to this was Eliezer of Masada. He said, quote, Jerusalem is now demolished. Nothing is left but that monument, I mean the camp of the Romans, Antonia Fortress. Fort Antonia built by Herod the Great, was much larger than the temple. Josephus said it was the size of a small city. It housed 6,000 troops and support staff, probably over 10,000 people lived there. The 10th Legion would stay there until 289 AD. Josephus said that Fort Antonia was built on a huge outcropping of rock. This is kind of important for us to understand. This 
fort biblically was referred to as the Praktorium and is the place where Pilate sentenced Christ. This rock has a Hebrew name, Gabatha, and it means rock. In John 19, 13, it says, Jesus was brought and stood on the Gabatha to be tried. This large stone is what is under the Dome of the Rock today. In 333 AD, Bordeaux Pilgrim came to Jerusalem and he recorded that he saw the massive walls of the Praktorium, or Fort Antonia, reaching down to the Tropian Valley below. Now because the Praktorium, or Fort Antonia, was where Christ was judged, if you can believe it, it initially was a Christian site. Constantine's mother, Helena, built a church over the oblong rock where Jesus' foot were supposed to be seen. It was called, quote, the Church of St. Cyrus and St. John. The church was later enlarged and called the Church of the Holy Wisdom. In the 6th century, Justin, the Piancienza pilgrim, identified the Church of Holy Wisdom and said it was the site of the Praktorium of Pilate. In 617 AD, the Persians destroyed the Church of the Holy Wisdom, and the Muslims took over Jerusalem in 638 A.D. In 692 A.D., Abd al-Malik, Abd al-Malik built the dome over the rock that is the original site of the Church of Holy Wisdom. Over the next 400 years of Muslim power, many more footprints and handprints apparently appeared. The footprint of Abraham, the hand of the archangel Gabriel, the feet of Muhammad, and even the handprint of God himself are reckoned somehow to be on the rock. These sightings added to the Muslim prestige of ownership of the rock. I need to emphasize this, though. Nowhere in the scriptures or eyewitness accounts are there found the slightest hint of a rock or an outcropping as part of the features of our temple of King Solomon. Our features are a threshing floor and the Gihon Spring. The history of the temple's Holy of Holies is, is, is interesting. It is shown that during Solomon's time, it was first located 50 feet north of the south wall. In the time of Alexander the Great, the sanctuary was 75 feet north of the south wall. And according to Josephus, our historian, during Herod's time, it was moved again to be 150 feet north of the south wall. In summary, the temple sanctuary, or Holy of Holies, moved periodically through history. Well, if the temple was located at the Harim-Yaxirif, or the Dome of the Rock, it would not have moved. You've got an immovable holy rock. You're not, there's no movement. Well, there is no holy rock that was part of Solomon's temple. So... The question might be asked, why do people today accept the Dome of the Rock as the temple site? At the time of the Crusaders, which is about 1165 AD, there was this Jewish merchant by the name of Benjamin Tadella. He came to visit Jerusalem. He was a well-educated man, and he recorded his journey and what he saw. He was enthralled over the supposed discoveries of the tombs of the kings, David and Solomon, found in 1150 A.D. at the southwest hill near what today is the Dome of the Rock. Well, because of his recordings and his assumptions that he made that the tombs of David and Solomon were right there, Jewish authorities started quickly to accept that the hill west of the Kidron Valley must be the original temple site. Now, you're not going to uh, 
be able to really understand this, but let me just read this slide. So have the tombs of the kings of Judah been found? After more than 20 years, Herschel Shanks deserves a direct, clear answer to this question. In fact, we have shown that Colner is not right. So we can answer Shanks' question with no hesitation. The tombs of the last kings of Judah have not yet been found because the tombs of the Dominican monastery in Jerusalem are not the sepulchers of the last kings of Judah. If we want to find these tombs, according to the Bible, we have to look in the southern part of Jerusalem. The tombs found were not those of David and Solomon. The tombs found were crusader origin. However, Tadella's fact he could write, and the fact that he commented on all of this is he won out the day, far and wide. Everybody's going to believe now that somehow the hill to the side of where these tombs were found, these crusader tombs, is, the, is King Solomon's temple. But not all Jewish scholars agree with Tadella. In fact, uh, Rabbi David Kimshi, who lived at the same time, and one of the great biblical historians of the Jews, he, he believed differently. And he said, and I quote, no Gentile had yet built any of their buildings over the site of the temple, and the temple is still in ruins. Well, at the time of Rabbi Kimshi, the real temple was outside the city walls of Jerusalem on the southeast ridge, as we've talked about, being used as a dump site for centuries. This was a period of dark ages, literally, for the Christians, the Jews, and the Muslims. All knowledge of where the temple location had been were lost and forgotten. However, after 1900 years, King Solomon's temple is actually starting to whisper to us from the debris and the dirt and the dust outside of the Jerusalem walls. Recent discoveries have started to shed new light on this long-kept secret. High priest Rabbi Yishmel from the Second Temple period used the Gihon Spring as a ritual bath prior to entering the temple. Recently, a Second Temple period arch and stone staircase descending to the Gihon Springs has been found, giving the evidence that the spring was in fact in service at the time of Herod's temple. A stepped wall dating 1200 BC near the time of David's conquest of the Jebusite city has now also been found. Uh, the structure has been revealed to be 60 feet uh, or 18 meters in height. Structure probably supported a royal building, perhaps even King David's temple. This is really interesting. First temple era seals from the city of David have now been found in the dig. First temple era seals. And in 2008, the palace, the actual palace of King David was discovered. Evidence that the city of David was larger than originally thought has now been uncovered. Israeli archeologists have unearthed a wall beyond Jerusalem's old boundary showing the city built biblically by King David may have been much larger than previously thought. High walls, part of a two-story structure demolished in 70 AD when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the second Jewish temple by King Herod. So a lot of these kind of things are shedding new and incredible light on the city of David. And then, of course, you, you can't have a story like this without buried treasure. 
unearthed in the city of David 264 solid gold coins worth a half a million dollars discovered by a British volunteer digging at the city of David. Why oh, wouldn't you have liked to have been that guy? Hopefully they gave him one. <laughs> and then perhaps one of the most significant finds recently and been positively identified now, the Pool of Siloam. From the time of Jesus, Jesus healed the blind man, putting mud on his eyes, asked him to wash his eyes from the pool of Siloam. That's in John 9, 1 through 11. That has been found in the city of David. And then this is one of the most intriguing finds. Coins dating 20 AD have been found under the foundation stones of the Western Wall. That wall thought to be the closest to the Holy of Holies, Herod's Temple Wall. 20 AD, a coin has, coins have been found. The coins are ancient bronze and that of Valerius Gratus. He's the prefect under Tiberius. Tiberius was 15 to 26 AD. Now Herod died in 4 BC. 24 years before the coins made their way somehow under the foundation stones of the Temple Mount. This indicates that what was thought to be part of Herod's original temple, the infamous Western Wall, is in fact a wall built by King Agrippa II, Herod's great-grandson, and has nothing to do with Herod's temple. Over the last few years, it's been my opportunity to become friends with a fellow named Eli Shikran. He's the leading archaeologist for the city of David. His 10 years of active digging in the city of David uh, make him perhaps the on-site expert on the city of David. And despite Jewish tradition and folklore, his discoveries may rewrite history someday. A few years ago, Eli abruptly stopped his digging and retired. His comment to me when I asked him why he stopped, quote, I found what I was looking for. What I'm going to now share with you are seldom seen pictures of the last things discovered by Eli Shukran. I consider it a great privilege to have witnessed this site. It changed my life certainly forever. And I'm going to share with you now dialogue between Eli and myself as we climb through the hidden tunnels of the city of David. Eli, quote, We were not here 4,000 years ago. We do not know what is happening. We cannot connect the dots even 2,000 years ago. We have difficulty connecting Bible stories. Many people say that the city of David is where the temple was. Well, all we can do is do the excavation. This picture is of Eli Shukran. Excavation in the area that I'm taking you to now started because of the discovery of steps coming up from the Gihon Springs. As we go into this cavern, there are connecting walls going north and south and east and west. And you come across three rooms, three rooms. Eli, these rooms are part of a citadel or palace and of the first temple period. Sacrifices were made in this room. Portions of skinned cut sacrifices were burnt in this area. This was an oil press. Solomon was anointed king at the Gihon Spring with oil taken from the Ark of the Covenant. The Spring of Gihon is within the citadel or palace. 
The oil press may have been used to anoint Solomon king. The Ark of the Covenant was at this site. This oil press was hinged. Temple oil was not used in public. The oil was used by the high priest with the Ark of the Covenant. This is not a synagogue we're in. This is a temple. This room was for skinning animals. And this is me talking now. The marks on the floor seem to resemble some Masonic and other ritual marks on the floor. These, uh, these marks were for the collecting of blood. The animals were strung up for skinning and portioning in this particular room, room two. The conal-shaped hole on the back left, right back here, was for making shoe bread. Shoe bread was part of the temple ritual and served as an offering to the Lord. The room was separated by a curtain. The curtain rod went in right here and came across to the wall on the opposite side. The rooms at the back of the chamber were for the high priest to dress in their holy apparel. And now we come to the kicker, the punchline. This area, room three, is where the beginning of the Bible is. This is Eli Shukran talking. This is the Holy of Holies. These three rooms date to Solomon. The stone was covered with dirt for protection. This is the Melchizedek stone, is what he called it. This stone could be as old as 4,000 years. I knew that something happened here. I did not know what until I started to clean it. I began to understand that this is the place where something huge happened, and we are now in the heart of it. This is an area of prayer and a place where people connect with God. From what we understand happened here, it was of the first temple period and even before. The Gihon Spring is 30 meters below us. You have everything here, fresh living water. This is the foundation of the earth that connects with God. An upright stone all these years was a sign that somebody long ago considered this to be an extremely sacred place. The upright stela is the only one ever found in Jerusalem. It certainly was a temple from the first temple period. Whose temple is it? We'll see. These are the ancient steps leading from those three rooms down to the Gihon Springs. It was these steps that were discovered that led to the discovery of the three rooms that I've just shown you. Gihon Spring, about 30 meters below this very site. Accessing the Gihon Spring and its headwaters was through a trap door. Then you have a series down below of offset cave openings, protection access to the Gihon Spring. And then you have the spring. It is in the bottom of the valley. It's protected. And it originates in this particular cave. So, where is King Solomon's temple? It's in the city of David. It's in Mount Moriah. It's on Aruna's threshing floor. It's over the Gihon Spring. It's where David built an altar to the Lord. It is where the Ark of the Covenant rested for 38 years. It is where living water flows abundantly and olive oil and animal sacrifice all mixed for temple rituals. It is not at the Dome of the Rock.
So will the Jews have to fight a war to access a piece of property that is not where King Solomon's temple was built? I think not. I hope you've enjoyed our presentation today, and thank you for joining me. Okay. So you're not going to tell where it really is? <laughs> it's, I showed you exactly where it's at. Well, I know. It's right there, where all three of those rooms are. I know, but what's above? Is that where somebody what, was feeling that that's... If you went right above it, the right above it is... Uh, is it's kind of, it is right over the offal or right over that 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 water source and it's uh, debris debris david's palace is off to the right if you go to the city of david and you tour it you can tour david's palace and then you can tour around and you can go down to hezekiah's tunnel and you can go out and go over to the pool of siloam but you cannot access this area because it's over here on the edge of the crescent I wanted to take just a second and share with you one of the most uh, current items that has been found at the dig of the city of David. Eli Shikran shared this with me. It's a, uh, it's a gold bell. It's a gold bell that has been found in the city of David. And of what significance might that be? In Exodus chapter 39 it says, And they made bells of pure gold, and they placed the bells in the midst of the pomegranates all around on the bottom hem of their robe. And a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, all around the bottom hem of the robe. And so the high priest had these bells along the hem of the robes that they wore and uh, found one of these. Again, identified with the city of David as the, the location where the temple was. Subscribe now.